you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 9. It's been said that this particular chapter is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. One of the most important chapters in the New Testament because the things that happen in this particular chapter help us to understand everything that the Apostle Paul later wrote. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Almost half of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, of those 13, it's really difficult to understand them if you forget about Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter, chapter number 9 is exciting, it is fascinating. I thought that perhaps I would act this one out a little bit. But then... You know, it's really difficult to act out a story where there are supernatural things happening. I figured I could have a spotlight come on and blind me, but that's a far cry from God himself showing up. You know, God shows up and he's there and he's bright and it blinds you. That's not quite the same as looking up into a spotlight, although I wonder sometimes. And if the earth shakes and you hear a voice, it's kind of like thunder. It's really hard to simulate all of that. So I decided that the power of the story of what really happened would help us out the most this morning. So here we go in Acts chapter number 9. We get the Apostle Paul, whose name at this point in time was Saul, it would later be changed, is traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. He had letters with him. You can follow along. I'm just going to kind of tell it to you. He had letters with him from the Sanhedrin and the high priests allowing him to take any, any Christians that he would find in Damascus or any place else he would travel to take them into custody or to just simply have them killed on the spot. He was, according to uh, chap- verse number 2, I believe, he was breathing out fiery, murderous threats. I not say that exactly, but that's the idea. He was breathing out like a dragon from the medieval times. He was breathing out these murderous threats to Christians, desiring with everything in him to kill the Christians. And so he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus along a dusty road. It was hot. doesn't say it was hot. I know it was hot. How do I know it was hot? It's always hot on that road. So he was traveling, it was hot, it was the middle of the day, the sun was beating down. He had traveling companions, all of them probably discussing the things they would like to do to the Christians once they catch them. Because once you get caught up in stuff like that, you just begin to really uh, start to breathe these kinds of things. And the storyline that you create in your head just kind of lives and breathes in you. And so they wanted, like everything, to find the Christians, kill the Christians, and move on someplace else and do the same thing. Well, on the road to Damascus, Saul sees a great light. Just kidding. Sees a great light. Hears a voice that his companions hear, probably more as thunder. They don't understand what's taking place. They, however, did see the light. And in the middle of this light, a voice starts to speak. Now, I was born and raised a pastor's kid. I lived for God most of my life and never really did anything wrong. I mean, smoked, no, never. Drank, never. Drugs, what are those? However, I've heard that, I've heard that if you do enough drugs, you really would relate to this particular part of the story. Oh, dude, bright lights. Yeah, I saw them. They were there. They were real, John. I thought they were... I ran into a homeless guy one time who was telling me a story really similar to this. He was drunk most of the time, and he had a story just like this. How about bright lights, and then there were voices, and then, of course, his story included snakes and things all over the floor, and so we just won't go there. But this is a different kind of story altogether. This is a different kind of story because in the middle of the bright light, a voice begins to speak. 
And the voice says to him, uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, knowing that he was not persecuting anybody who was in a bright light with a loud voice that boomed and the entire earth shook, Saul had a couple of questions. I would have too. Who are you and what are you talking about? The voice spoke again. Why are you persecuting me? What? And it was at that moment in time that the voice identified himself and said, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I'm sure that there was a longer conversation than that. I'm sure there's a bit more of an explanation than when something like, whenever you do something to me, to my people, you're doing it to me. And so from there, Saul had an understanding that God wanted to do something different with his life. And so his companions helped him up when the voice was, was done speaking and the, the light was done shining. His companions helped him up and when it says, when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. He was blind. So his companions helped him walk along the road on into Damascus where he went and stayed eating nothing and drinking nothing for three days. Now at the same time, there was a godly person living in Damascus whose name was Ananias. I must confess, when I was a bit younger, I always thought Ananias was about 50. 50, 60, something like that. I think it was easier. It was, 50 doesn't seem sold anymore, does it, Pastor Mark? <laughs> uh, I always thought of him as quite a bit older, and it just seemed easier because to do what he was going to be asked to do, it just was easier to think of that as being an older person. I've come to believe as I've gotten older that that may not be the case. I have no idea how old he was. I have no idea what he looked like. That probably is part of the whole point. A man who we know nothing about other than he was a godly person was praying and God spoke to him and God said, You know that guy Saul? The one who wants to beat you up. The one who wants to kill you. Yeah, he's here. I want you to go pray for him. Let's pray. God, for our time together this morning, I ask that you would touch us. That we would be touched by you, from your throne room, by your power, and we would see a vision. A vision of the future, if we will say yes to you. We thank you for it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so at that very point in time, Ananias had some decisions that he had to make. A dangerous decision, to be sure. A decision about how he was going to live for God, how he was going to serve God. A decision about the future. His future. Saul's future. And the future of a whole lot more people than that. Decisions are kind of like that. You don't know when a decision that you make on a particular day will become a life-changing decision. You know some of the life-changing decisions. March 10, 1989, I knew that day that when I asked Cheryl Carpenter to marry me, it was a life-changing decision. was well aware of that. But when I picked up my phone in the December, somewhere around the middle of, of the previous decade, and a young lady was on the other end of the phone. I did not know how that phone call would change me. Didn't know how her story would come to change me. Didn't know how the problems that were in her life would impact me as I tried to minister to her. Nothing bad other than she had a few issues. And I would be able over the, few, the years after that to help walk her through those issues with Jesus' help. I didn't know how that, you don't know how some days, just doing ordinary things, something 
extraordinary happens. And you don't always even see it until well after the moment. And this story may have been one of those. This is a story about evangelism of sorts. What we've been talking about the last few weeks. An opportunity to share one's faith with someone else. It's also a story, however, about a way to live for God. A particular way to live for Him. It's almost a tall tale. Except this one is true. At that very point, there was a dangerous decision for Ananias to make. And we can learn a little bit from what he did in his decision. A dangerous decision, perhaps because it was a dangerous call that said, go and go to this guy who really wants to kill you. How many of you have people... I shouldn't ask this. How many of you have people who want to kill... Gary Oslin has people who want to kill... If you've read his jokes on Facebook, you know why they want to kill him. It dawned on me that that could really backfire. Someone here really did have people... No, never mind. Most of us never experience this. Unless you're like 14 or 15 and some guy who, you know, in gym class, I'm going to kill you. I own you. Unless it's one of those kinds of moments, we have no idea what this is like. Nobody has ever said, uh, God has never said, hey, I want you to drive over to Brayburn Street a few blocks away and pray for someone. By the way, that person wants to kill you. But I have to linger on that point for a moment so that you can get the full grasp and the full scope of what really was being asked of Ananias. A dangerous call, to be sure. He knew it well. It was his first instinct to say, "Um, God, I'm not so sure about this. This would be the point in time in which I should really become a pie-in-the-sky, utopian, perfect world kind of person and look down on him for his first instinct being to argue with God. Pastor Pete, on retreat, have you ever argued with God and said, God, I'm just not real sure about this. Because I know I have. I have had God... God, really, are you... Could we take a moment and discuss this, God? Because I'm not sure I like this idea. This could really turn out bad for me. That was what Ananias said. Now, he was not completely turning God off at that point. He wasn't saying no. He was just saying, God, I think I need a moment. Could could I get used to this idea for a moment first? Could we discuss this a little bit? And in that discussion, he began to tell God, God, I don't know that this is such a good idea. And as he began to do that, God began to stress over and over again, I know this is an extraordinary request, but I need someone to do it. I need someone who's willing to say yes in this great act of servanthood. A dangerous thing to be sure to live your life as a servant. A dangerous thing to be sure to say I'm willing to serve God and to serve other people no matter what happens. And it's at this level that people often get hung up. I'm all for spiritual gifts. I like the idea, love the idea of of serving out of my gifts. But you know, I'm quite certain I don't have the spiritual gift of chair stacking. Yet I have stacked thousands of chairs. I know I don't have the spiritual gift of table taking down. (laughs) Yet I have done that. I, I am certain of this, okay? I am certain I do not have the gift of flyer distribution. But I have distributed over 50,000 flyers for Jesus in my time. I'm certain sometimes that I can minister out of my gifts and other times I minister out of my love for God and my love for other people. 
And those two things ought to always go together. And people get hung up there. They think they ought to serve out of their gifts or they think they should wait until they see a a bright light and hear a great voice telling them that they should bake a pie for their neighbor. Telling them that they ought to serve the lady down the street who can't rake her leaves anymore. Friends, you don't need that. Matthew has already told us that Jesus has done that. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus already gave us that command. You can turn there if you'd like, please. Matthew chapter 25 at the end is a bit of a parable, but not really. Jesus is very direct and to the point in Matthew 25. He's talking, been talking, according to Matthew for some time. And he tells them, there will be in the kingdom of heaven, there will be people who appear before me. And they will say, Lord, Lord, we lived for you, we served you. And I will tell them, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I had leaves to be raked. And instead they stayed on the ground. Depart from me. I never knew you. And then there will be another group of people who will appear before him. And he will say, There was a roof to be fixed. And you got out the ladder. There were women who were abused. And you volunteered at the shelter. Enter into my rest. And they will say, We never saw you hungry. We never saw you you thirsty. When did this happen? And he will answer them. And he will say, When you have done it unto the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me. That for me is a life-changing verse. A verse that took me from being a kind of a nice, compassionate guy. I'm glad most of you didn't know me then, so I can say that. (laughs) Basically a nice, compassionate guy, but one who wasn't really big into this idea at all. And then I read that verse and someone explained to me, you know it says that when you do this to other people, you are really serving Jesus. And like like a two-by-four right between my eyes, I understood that if I wanted to serve Jesus, I had to be willing to serve other people too. That they went hand in hand. But I couldn't say, I couldn't say, Lord, Lord, I live for you without at the same time participating in true religion, which according to James is to help the widows, to take care of the orphans, to take care of the homeless. Not specific ministries necessarily, but telling us those who are in the greatest need, need the most. And it should be our responsibility to serve them. That's what Ananias was being asked to do. And I don't need a giant voice to tell me to do that. I merely need to see the opportunity and say, Jesus must be in that opportunity. And so a dangerous call, dangerous if you want to have your life changed by helping other people. It was a risky situation where he was called to risk courageous love, no doubt, for Ananias was willing to risk servanthood. And servanthood is a radical idea. A radical idea where you say, I will radically serve other people with a radical love. Unless you get hung up on the idea of it being dangerous or risky, remember that in The Lord of the Rings, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll just help you for a moment. A hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, says, it's a dangerous thing walking out your front door. 
walk out your front door, get in your car and drive away. You know, most all accidents happen within one mile of your house. Anytime you leave, you're risking things. But I'm, I go serving. Who knows what might happen to me? You're right. Who knows? Who knows what will happen to you if you go to the grocery store? You don't know. Who knows what will happen to you if you go to Taco Bell? You don't know. Who knows what will happen to you when you go into work tomorrow? You don't know. Who knows what will happen if you decide to invest your life in other people? You don't know. It took courage for Ananias to agree. And he summoned up his courage and he went in order that he might serve God better. He knew he needed to serve Paul. The ultimate comfort risk. Imagine the kind of radical love that was required to make that decision. What will you do when God asks you to step outside of a place where you are comfortable? At that point in time, you'll discover that this is a dangerous decision. And imagine how this will impact the young lady, let's just call her Sybil Hill. Why? Because it's a nice name. And I had another name in mind, but it was really close to someone I know. And then I discovered that there may be someone here who kind of knows her, so I shouldn't talk about her at all. Imagine how this would impact Sybil Hill. She doesn't really care what we believe about God, mostly because she doesn't really care. She doesn't care that we worship because she just doesn't care. She hears stories about fundamentalists in the news and that's all she really knows about them. She doesn't think she knows anybody who believes that. She sees evidence all around her about fundamentalists, you know, the people who really, literally believe the Bible. I think there's more to being a fundamentalist than that. Because I literally believe the Bible and I don't think I'm a fun... I'm certain I'm not a fundamentalist. I could uh, get myself in a lot of trouble if I stay right here, but let's... Uh, Let's move on. Because Sybil doesn't really care about anything. Not about God, at least. She wasn't raised in a Christian home. She's never really gone to church. She knows very little about God. Everybody she knows knows very little about God. She doesn't hang out with people who know much about God, at least from what she thinks. All she knows is what she sees on television. And that, my friends, is not a very good thing. She knows what she thinks. She, she thinks she knows something about the church, that they're out of touch, they're out of step, they're out of their minds, they're out, of, out for revenge against gays, they're out to restrict women. That does not sound like a very good group of people. And especially doesn't to her. But the radical love of servanthood has the opportunity to impact her. When she sees people who literally believe the Bible and when it literally says climb up on a roof and put the shingles on, on Judy Link's roof and they literally do that, suddenly the literal belief in the Bible is a much different thing for her. And she's able to say, you know, at least they really believe what they say they believe. And there's an opportunity to impact her. I know that type of person because I've lived around them in, in, while living in Glendale for the last eight or nine years. They're everywhere. They don't care that we worship. They didn't care that I was planting a church there because they didn't care. They didn't care that we worship because they didn't care about God at all. It's the future of spirituality in our country. They're not atheists. They're agnostics. They don't care. They know they don't know and they don't really care. Why even bother exploring? And the only way to impact them is through a radical love of servanthood. 
where they can see something that's different and say, I may not know much, but I know I like that. And I will do my best to find out what that is all about. It is a risk. It's a risk of courageous love. And it's the only risks that really are worth taking. The ones where you say, I will radically love the people around me. And by doing so, I will participate in a powerful story. Where did the power come from? That tremendous power for Ananias. Where did the power for that kind of radical love come from? Now, when I set out to think about this sermon, I thought I might spend my entire time talking about power for evangelism, and God had a different plan. And so I did a little bit of background research on that. I went to my Bible computer program, typed in words, and typed in the words spirit and and power together, and I found 12 instances in the New Testament where the words spirit and power appear together. Ten of those twelve all refer to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hmm. That wasn't quite what I expected. I, after all, have a degree from a Pentecostal college. It's the Spirit's power. Much different than that. So I typed in other words together. I typed in God and power. I found the same thing. I typed in Jesus and power. I found the same thing. I became absolutely, 100%, completely and totally convinced that the power for that kind of radical love came from the cross of Christ. It's the power of the story. It's the power of the story of what Jesus did that impacted Ananias. The anointing of the Spirit, it's in the power of the story. You just tell his story. And that story has tremendous power. Especially it has tremendous power when it's been seen before it's heard. And that's what Ananias was trying to do, was to allow that to be seen in the life of other people. But I must wonder about the world change that took place in this story. Because I have to wonder, what if Ananias had said no? Well, God would have found someone else. Oh, really? You certain about that? I'm not quite as certain as what you might be. Yes, God may have found someone else to go, but maybe not with the same impact. Maybe not in the same time period. It may have taken a lot longer. But let's just for a moment assume the worst case scenario. Let's assume Ananias had said no. And when he said no, let's assume that nothing ever happened to Paul after that. Thirteen books in the New Testament, you could take them out. The church in Europe, you could exclude it, probably altogether. But Rome, Peter, no, no, That's bad history. Didn't really happen that way. You could just exclude most of Europe in the gospel of Christ because most of it happened from Paul going. And then the roots spread out from there. You get rid of most of that. The gospel in England? Probably not. That's a bad thing because I'm English. I think there's a really good chance that if Ananias had said no and and no one else went, I think there's a really good chance that I did never live for God. One man's decision changed the world. He had no idea. He just knew it was risky. He just knew that he was called to an active servanthood. Go and pray for a person. He knew that he had to say yes. Why? Because God had asked him to. And servitude and giving of his life was a way of life for him. And so he said, that's what I'm going to do. 
And he watched as the world was changed because of it. World-changing moments take place when we are willing to change who we are. You can only live a life of impact when you have had an impacted life by the power of the cross. You can only help other people to be changed and be a change agent when you yourself have been changed by the power of Jesus. And that one decision changed the course of history. Why? Because one man, Ananias, was willing to just show up and pray at one man's house and see what God would do from there. Didn't really know what he was getting himself into. Didn't know about the blindness. Didn't know that God would heal it. Didn't know that from there he would become a mighty man of God, used around the world. Didn't know any of those things necessarily. Ananias simply knew he had to go. God gave him a brief explanation and said, I've called him to testify for me throughout the world. But that's really kind of unknown and we don't know much more than that. And Ananias didn't. He simply said, if I'm going to touch other people, I must be a servant. Because the power of touching other people who don't know God comes through radical love and servanthood. And the power behind that is the love that Jesus showed on the cross. It was complete and total self-giving of Himself to touch other people. I wish I had tremendous stories from my life that I could tell you about that. The truth is, I probably do. But there's, a, but there's another truth as well. There's a truth of missed opportunities. At times I might have not said yes, but have said no. And I wonder what could have happened in those moments if I had said something different. I wonder about the guy who threatened to beat me up after gym class when I was a freshman in high school. I wonder, if I, had, I wonder if I had said something more what might have happened in his life instead of what did happen. I don't know. And those kind of thoughts rush through my head. But I know that this is not really about the past. This is all about the future and what I can do in the future and how I can say yes to serving him and serving other people because those two are the same thing. Ananias believed it to be so. Ananias believed that by saying yes to the God's call and a tremendous risk of servanthood, the power of the cross, that there would be a great reward and he would go and do it because it was serving Jesus. And Jesus himself said that, that it's the exact same thing, that by serving other people, you are serving him. And we have seen it true in our own lives that when serving other people, we understand we are participating in the love of Jesus and that's impacting other people. And so the real question for us is, how can we serve tomorrow? How can we serve someone today? When I leave this room, how can I serve someone in a greater way on a deeper level? Because servanthood becomes a way of life where everything you do, you start to see as an act of servanthood. It changes the way that you speak in public. It changes the way that you, yeah, that you lead people. It changes the way that you work. It changes the way that you're a neighbor to people. It changes all sorts of things when you say... I want radical love unleashed in my life to serve other people. Because people who are truly radical for God, there's a buzzword. Did you grow up with that word, Suzanne? I did. People thought they were radical when they would stand up in back of a service and jump up and down and wave their hands. 
Remember those days, the 80s, that was radical? I've come to believe that that wasn't radical at all. Quite frankly, anybody could stand in a church service where it's a nice, clean environment. Climbing on a roof, now that's, that's another matter entirely. Someone asked me about my phobias. Heights. Those moments are radical love. One year, right around my birthday, a gentleman in our church came to me and said, a couple weeks before my birthday, came to me and said, I have tickets to a Packer game. Packers are playing Detroit Lions Thursday evening game. I have tickets to the game and a bus and everything will be paid for. Would you like to go along? I'll pay for it. Don't worry about that. Would you just like to go along? That's a moment where you don't have to think much. I said, sure. Then he said, I'd like to bring this other guy along with us. Is that all right? I don't care. So being the good pastor that I was, I decided I should sit next to this other guy, get to know him. By the time that we had pulled out of the parking lot, the gentleman in charge of the bus tour said, um, there's free beer up front and right back here, help yourself. The guy who was sitting next to me said, great. I am not lying. By Racine, he was drunk. By Chicago, it was getting pretty much out of control. By Detroit, he doesn't remember a thing. We went to the game. He was supposed to sit with us. We have no idea what happened to him. We talked amongst ourselves, me and the other guy. We have no idea if he's going to show up at the bus when we get back there. We just don't know anything. So we went and showed back up at the bus. He was there. Sat down next to me again. Boy, that was a ride home. <laughs> Kept thinking, you know, this story would be really good if I told him the sermon if I had him puke all over me. But he didn't. So, boy, that would have been a really good story, though, wouldn't it? No, what did happen, what really did happen is the following Wednesday, he was in church. He had been in church two or three Wednesdays before. He was in church again that Wednesday. And the one after. And the one after that. He's now the senior Royal Ranger commander in that church. He's he's actively involved as an usher. I, I made him head usher months before I left that church. And his friend told me that the last time he remembers seeing him drunk was on the bus ride. I don't know what happened. I just said yes. Was it an Ananias moment? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Anything could happen when he decides to turn his life around and touch boys and rangers. Anything could happen when you decide to give yourself back to kids and kids ministry. Maybe a great NFL player will come through there. Been in. NFL player or two has come through that Ranger outpost before. Who knows what could happen? I don't know. Never thought of that. I just thought, boy, this guy's annoying. It's like, you know, I wonder if I nailed his feet down if he wouldn't be able to get any more beer. No, he'd probably have someone throw it to him. I wonder what moment God has for you that you might miss if you're not willing to live a life of servanthood. Pray with me.